Today's program was made possible by the generous prayer and support of the faithful friends and partners of this ministry. Visit our new website at Sheila.media. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sheila Zelensky Show for this August 10th, 2018 edition. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to tune into the program today. It is a great program. My guest today was probably the most re-requested guest after he was on the last time, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. But before I do that, very quickly reach out to me and let me know that you did receive the August e-newsletter and check your junk folder because I suspect a lot of people's newsletter is going to the junk folder. I think they told me once you get it a couple times, then it won't go into your junk folder. So please do check your spam folder and let me know if you did receive August newsletter. And if you're not signed up, make sure you are because it's a great way to stay in the loop and especially on exciting up and coming guests. So make sure you are subscribed to my free e-newsletter. Simply go to media. And while you're there, click on books, go to Power Prayers, subtitled Warfare That Works. Get yourself a copy of this incredible arsenal. If you're a Christian, you need to have this book. It is powerful, scripture-based, spiritual warfare. Don't forget this. Prayer is when you're addressing God. Warfare is when you're addressing the enemy. You cannot leave that part out. Not in this day and age, you can't. So Carl and I have assembled an incredible book. No matter what is happening in your world, you have the power and authority to change things because God gave us a rod of authority. And that's really important in this climate that we live in. You know, look at all the craziness going on. So do not be without this book. And I'm telling you right now, this is not a sales pitch. This is a must have. Power Prayers Warfare That Works. Go to my website and get yourself a copy of this very important book. Well, without further ado, I want to jump right into the program. My guest, like I said, he was, boy, people wanted him back on the program very much. And now I've almost completed his book. I'm really nearing the end of his book. And this thing's like 800 pages, including the work cited. It's a big read. I really wanted to finish it so I could really tailor my questions and engage. It is such a pleasure to have on the program, Gary Wayne from Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Gary, welcome back to the program sir. It is such a pleasure to have you back on. Well, thank you for inviting me back and uh, so happy to be here and happy to learn that you're enjoying the book and uh, trying to digest all of the information that's in it. It's not one of those quick reads and uh, I think you're probably wise to pace yourself because there's just that much information in it. Digest indeed. Well, Gary, here's where I want to start today. I want to get into this subject today on the son of perdition, the Antichrist. What's going on in Revelation 9? How does Joel's army fit into this Apollyon, Abaddon, beasts of the earth like scorpions, leviathan, serpents, dragons? We're going to get into all that today. But Gary, why is there so much contention, confusion, and just why does this book caused so much befuddlement, I guess, is the question. I think it's because we try, we we make it too complicated. And there's all sorts of different ways to approach prophecy. Uh, I have a pretty simple approach. And when I allow that approach to work, for me, what it does is it just sifts things through and makes it quite simple. So probably because we're going to talk about some controversial things and there's many disagreements in terms of how to read and understand Revelation, particularly Revelation 9, which has just thousands and thousands of different theories to it, is my, you know, my first approach is to read the Bible literally. And anything that's in the Bible is defined within the Bible. And so we need to, we need to just have faith and, and rely on that, that this is not something created by the secret societies where you have to go through the mysteries and the 33 different levels and higher even still to understand all the meanings below the surface. You can take it back to Hebrew and Greek if you like, and that's as, as far as you really need to go. It's, it's a literal book that is, in my opinion, written in a linear manner, and it just keeps things sorted. And I also like to assemble all the appropriate verses and passages around the same subject so that when you do that, you eliminate the contradictions because it has to fit. It has to fit like a glove. And then the most important thing is, is I like to look at what Jesus said first and assemble all other 
prophecy and passages around what he said. And we're very, very fortunate that he gave an oration on the end times and his second coming and what to look for, and we get an order of events there. So when we place that around the order, then things start to open up. But Revelation 9 throws people even who might follow that as as a loop because you've got a lot of things going on there and you've got you know some sort of star that's falling down from from the heavens which i don't think is azazel or abaddon or apollyon i think they're actually in the abyss and the reason why i say that is because they have the key to the abyss and in revelation 20 when satan uh, is going to be locked into the abyss there's another angel who comes down and has the key to the abyss to, to, to lock Satan in there. So I think it's probably the same angel, because the Bible is, is very consistent in that sort of approach, and I don't think you give the key to the abyss to the bad guys. I just don't <laughs> think you do that. I think you let them out when you want to let them out, so to speak. So you have all of this going on, and then what comes out of the abyss is absolutely extraordinary. And I think Revelation 9 has tentacles that go forwards and backwards into prophecy, not that the order changes, it's just that it connects into so many different things of what I would call the supernatural nature of the Bible. And I know for a lot of people, the supernatural area is something they like to shy away from, but I think most of the Bible is supernatural. And this is just another extension of it, and it's kind of the darker side because we're dealing with the spiritual realm and the manifestations and sins and creations they created thereof. So what we see coming out of the abyss that Abaddon or Apollyon, as it's known in Greek, is leading are things that people have tried to sort of rationalize over the years that they're helicopters and they're this and they're that. Well, if it says they're like beings like scorpions, I think they're beings like scorpions. And if you can accept that, then some of the other things that you'll read in other sections of the book will make some sense, and I'll kind of come back to that. And you've got a war, a major war in Revelation 9. Uh, you know, there's 200 million man war, and people say, well, that's that has to be Armageddon because, I mean, how could there be a bigger army that, you know, that's being talked about you know, than that? And again, this is, to me, not Armageddon, because, again, I look at Revelation as a linear narrative. And what I mean by linear is as it happens in order. And there's a couple areas where you get some details of things like the destruction of Babylon, but you get actually the marking of the destruction of Babylon in the time of the trumpets. You just have the destruction of it in chapters 17 and 18 that follow a little bit later, but it tells you when the destruction is. So just as sort of a preamble to what we're going to be looking at, that's my approach. So if there's any questions on that that you might have in Sheila or any comments that you might in terms of that approach, that's my approach. Right. And I think that's good advice. Well, listen, Gary, I'm just going to throw you the mic and you take this topic wherever you want to go and you shoot it back to me when you're ready, sir. Sure. I think that's uh, probably a good way to go. And we're, and I'm probably going to be bouncing back and forth because I know these things have a lot, of, a lot of tentacles. So let's just deal, first of all, with the fact that whatever Abaddon and Apollyon are leading, what we do know when we're looking at the Genesis 6 verses with the creation of the Nephilim and that that the demons are the bodiless spirits for the Nephilim. And if anybody ever wants a, a Word document on the case for demons or the case for the sons of, uh, of God being angels and another one for not being the sons of Seth, I have all of that. Just ask for what you, what you want by, by name so I know what to send you if, if you have an interest in that. And so we have in the abyss, as we're told in Jude and First Peter, is that you have the impassioned fallen angels, the ones who committed the violations against the laws of creation, being sentenced to the abyss. And of course, first Enoch, which I know isn't scripture, is all about this, and you can get some extraordinary details out of first Enoch, even though there's a few things about Enoch that strays a little bit from the Bible. I think it's a pretty good add-on to what's going on in Genesis 6. And so we have these fallen angels that are in the abyss. So the first connection gets to be is, is what the angels that call caused the destruction of the antediluvian world and caused the first apocalypse, we're going to see in the end time. And it's after the seals are opened, and it's sometime before the midpoint of the last seven years. And there are seemingly more than just the fallen angels, because typically fallen angels aren't described as these scorpion-like beings, right? That doesn't mean there weren't other 
beings that were put into the abyss along with the impassioned fallen angels. One could imagine maybe the worst of the demon spirits would be cast in there, and some people think Nimrod was cast in there even after the flood. Uh, again, a possibility we don't know. But I think we need to look at these beings as, as literal. And we do get some corroboration to these types of beings that seem to fit very well with what Revelation is talking about in Revelation 9 from outside the Bible. And the two sources that I found very enlightening, and even though you see the scorpion gods all around the earth, whether or not it's in Egypt or it's in Central America with the Kishamaya and the Aztec, or it's in India, or it's in Sumeria, where I'm going to give a couple references to, they're talking about a very similar type of being or a created lower god. By, by the fallen angels, however you want to interpret how polytheism looks at things. And that is in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which again has giants and the flood story, and also a second incursion with Gilgamesh and, and Enkidu being created after the flood, and they're two-thirds God, one-third human, so they're clearly Nephilim, and a story about Atishtin, or Isaiah Zudra, depending which translation you're using, and, and a survival of giants on an ark and a flood story. When we look at the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Enuma Elish, we get two types of beings as they're known as in, in, in Sumeria, and they were known as the Akrab Buamalu and the Gerda Balu. What's interesting is when you take scorpion in Hebrew as opposed to Greek back to its Hebrew form, that's H6137, which is a crab, which is the prefix to their crab, Buamalu, as it's transliterated into English. And here's what they looked like. They were uh, described to be beings with the head and the torso and the arms of a man and the body of a scorpion. They had avian or bird legs and feet and wings and they launched powerful destructive weaponry depicted as some form of arrows from bows as stinging their prey and also stinging their prey from a venomous tail. And there are all sorts of reliefs and pictures in, in ancient civilizations that show this. And again, I have a Word document and pictures of all of these beings um, in a Word document or on a Facebook commentary if people want to get a hold of me after the show to uh, e email it to them or link them to it. These scorpion gods are also the source to the uh, scorpion kings in mythology that you see some of the movies out there about. The scorpion gods were created by Tiamat. But Tiamat is the equivalent to Leviathan in the Bible. Some of the other names people might know out of, out of Middle East mythology, and they have different names for these all around the world, but Lotan or Nahar would be other names. And uh, like I say, every culture and religion has a Leviathan-type being, of, but in their version, it's the creation gods and the cosmic egg and all of that wonderful stuff. And so these scorpion beings that are created by Tiamat, they were created to attack the lower gods and to keep them in line. And they were destroyers of lower gods and they were known as destroyer type of, of gods. And then after Tiamat is destroyed in, in polytheism, then they were guarding the temples of the sun and to the gateways to the abyss in the underworld. And again, when we start talking about these gates to the underworld and to the abyss, then we have this connection back to, to Revelation 9, uh, along with the descriptions that they are and how they're described in uh, in the Bible. And when I look at the Enuma Elish, is, is that Tiamat created a lot of interesting beings that people may be familiar with. She's accredited in the Sumerian, and I also know you have Bast in the Egyptian mythology that would also be credited with opening Pandora's box, and all of the religions have their own variation, but sticking with the one to keep it simple, she creates also the Hydra and the dragon, the hairy hero, which seems to be the Anunnaki. I think that's probably how it should have been translated, because the Anunnaki are shown as being hairy, and we know Nephilim were hairy. The great demon, which whatever whatever the great demon is, the savage dog and the scorpion man, which we're talking about, and uh, the fish man and the bull man. They were carriers of fantastic weapons into war. And I think this is part of what also is being described, and that these destroyer beings were all locked away into the abyss. And I think if we look at 
what we're seeing in Revelation 9, that starts to make some sense. And so when we look at that, then we look at what Revelation 9 is talking about. There's like a couple of parts to Revelation 9. Not only do these beings come out, but we also have similar type of beings, but slightly different descriptions for these scorpion-type beings later on in Revelation 9 when it starts talking about this war of 200 million people. And, and it's, we're going to lose a third of the population of the Earth, a third of everything because of this war. And again, I think there's more going on than what first meets the eye because they're slightly different. But if we now match that up with Joel um, 1 and 2, we get a very similar type of creature and being described in Joel 1 and 2 in, in this great war. And I think this 200 million man war is the same war in Joel 1 and 2 as in Revelation 9 because it matches up perfectly. And then when you move into Joel 3 and 4, you have the Armageddon that comes later. And again, I know that this is a little bit counterintuitive in terms of how some people might look at it, but if you buy into the fact that these beings are going to lead these armies and entice people to war, and that they are the destroyers of the earth, that's what they were created to do by the, by the fallen angels, and to also attack rival angels or gods, then this starts to make some sense. And then if we look at Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 with the Gog War, Gog and Magog are notorious giants in Greek mythology, and they are the sons of Iapetus or Poseidon, depending on which translation that you're going to use on that, and I think they're the same god. So we have giants that I think are leading the war in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And again, people think, well, no, that's got to be Revelation 20 and 21, where you have the Gog War after the millennium. Except that, it clearly says in 38 that this happens in the latter days when the people have been gathered onto the mountains of Israel and the people of Israel. So the latter days are the end time. And then, then in chapter 39, it talks about the second exodus. So again, we're getting time markers and we're getting these supernatural beings coming together to create this huge war that looks like Armageddon. And that's the point. This is a counterfeit Armageddon. This happens towards the middle of the last seven years. People will think it's Armageddon. This will be part of the credibility that Antichrist takes and drafts for himself to convince people that he's the Messiah. So just as Jesus comes at Armageddon to slaughter the armies, he'll take credit, I think, for the Gog War and protecting Israel. And that's why Israel is, even though Antichrist is rising, they look at him as the false messiah. And plus, they're also given the sacrifice that happens at the beginning of the last seven years on a wing of the temple, as Daniel describes. And this covenant that is negotiated for the last seven years is negotiated by Antichrist. And he starts his rise to power, even though you have the ten empires or groups of nations or trading blocks that the secret societies have already divided the world up, and that's been the role of the Club of Rome, ruling the earth, but under the control of Babylon, which is the mystery religion, Enoch the Evil, and Babylon, and Babel, and controls the world empire, because this is the organization that is able to bring the world together, through taking advantage of cataclysms and false signs and things like that. But this starts the last seven years, and so this war happens so that Antichrist can add to his pedigree to deceive people. Now, what's interesting, and another connection back to all of this, as I make that point, is we need to understand the, the uh, son of perdition term. Because when we understand the son of perdition, then we understand the timing a little bit better as well. And the son of perdition, as it's talked about in a few chapters, one would be Second Thessalonians, when he's revealed, and it gives an order of antichrist rise to power at the uh, midpoint of the last seven years and we also get that in revelation 17 twice the son of perdition and so we need to understand what that means we all we we know it means antichrist but it means more as we we get in into the context and then there's one other place where we have which is going to be very important in understanding what happens as an example we have son of perdition mentioned in john 13 when it comes to judas 
And also in John 13, 27, we have Satan who enters Judas to portray Jesus. So Antichrist is a denier of Jesus, just as Judas is denying that Jesus is the Christ. And he's avatared as opposed to possessed by Satan. And so we have an example of a son of perdition being used that is going to be important to understand what happens to Antichrist. Antichrist, he receives a mortal head wound in Revelation 13. I think this is the time when he is avatar and brought back to life to fake a false uh, resurrection because everything the mystery religion does, everything Antichrist does is a counterfeit. That's why he's called Antichrist. He's a counterfeit. Uh, that's why false prophets, they, they counterfeit everything about God and try and deceive people that way. So when we understand now um, that Antichrist is likely going to be avatared as Judas was, then we read in Revelation 17, where it's talking about the son of perdition, that Antichrist is described as the one who once was, now is not, and will come again and comes up out of the abyss. So it seems that there's going to be an individual that's in the abyss who's going to either possess, if it's a demon, or avatar. So then when we look at the word perdition, because Antichrist is called the son of perdition, that goes back to apolia in Greek, A-P-O-L-I-A. And that name is very, very close to Apollo and or Apollyon, as Abaddon is the Hebrew version of the name, and Apollyon is the Greek name. So then if we look at where G684 perdition Apollya is rooted in, it is rooted in G622, which is a very, very similar transliterated name into English again as Apollomi. That means to destroy. Just as Abaddon and Apollyon are the destroyer in Revelation 9, and just as the destruction of Babylon in Jeremiah is destroyed by the spoiler and the destroyer, which all link back to Abaddon, as you take that back. And I, I have a Word document on that as well, if people want that. And so then when we look at, okay, well, 622 and 684, 622 is part of a whole series of very similar words, and we find that 622 is now uh, rooted in 623 and 625. 623 is Apollon, which is also pronounced um, and, and considered as Apollyon. Apollon, so the Y would be sort of silent as, as, as you would transliterate that, but there's a Y in it as we take that into English, which is destroyer, and the angel of the bottomless piss, and 625, which is Apollo. And so you have Apollo and Apollyon, which are known as the same god in Greek mythology and religion as being who the son of perdition is. And so when we talked about Antichrist being avatared, uh, being avatared by somebody who comes up out of the abyss, who once was and now is not, but will be again, comes up out of the abyss, and that we understand Antichrist had a fatal head wound, I think the timing is, and this is before the midpoint of the last seven years, but getting very, very close, all of this happens. So the timing of Antichrist being possessed and literally being the son of Apollyon or Abaddon out of the abyss, I think now all comes together that this is the rise of Antichrist to true Antichrist. Because remember in Matthew, Jesus said there would be many Antichrists. Just as Gog in the New Testament from Greek, if you take that back to Hebrew and its meaning, although it's rooted in Gog in, in, in Hebrew as it's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and back into Genesis, it is also a term used for an Antichrist. And Gog is leading this war in Revelation 9, Joel 1 and 2, and Ezekiel 38 and 39. And now when I talked about that we have an Armageddon war to counterfeit the rise and substantiate the pedigree of Antichrist, and now we have and see why he becomes so powerful, because he's going to be avatar. Just as Judas was the son of perdition and was avatar. And so that the words of scripture could be fulfilled, and again, so that the Antichrist prophecies could be fulfilled in this case, God will permit this to happen to lead people astray. So when we're talking about Revelation 9, and we're talking about 
the destruction of Babylon, which is going to happen after the Gog War, and we're talking about the rise of Antichrist, uh, understand after Antichrist is going to be Avatar, and as what is described in Revelation 17, is Antichrist will turn on Babylon and destroy Babylon so that it can set itself up to be a new religion and uh, worship directly Satan. And this, again, is the same time as Revelation 12, when you have the war in heaven, and you have all of these angels coming down to participate in the end time. And this is, all of the stuff that is going on is is what Jesus is talking about with, about with the birth pangs. And if you go back into Isaiah, and you go back in, in, into Isaiah 13 and 14, which are the same prophecy, and Jeremiah 50 and 51, in terms of the destruction of Babylon, these are the, the travise and the labor pains that are being talked about there. So Jesus is being very specific that what happens in Revelation is that you have very similar destruction whether or not it's in the seals, it's in the trumpets, or it's in the wrath bowls. But they become increasingly more intense, happening more often. And this is what is being described in the linear nature, in my opinion, of Revelation, is that you have all of these things that seem like similar catastrophes and destructions are going to happen multiple times, but in ever-increasing intensity as we get towards the end time. And that's how Antichrist deceives people that this is Armageddon because it looks like Armageddon. And then when we enter back into, as I mentioned, Isaiah 13 and 14, and it's the same prophecy, and we understand that Isaiah is talking about the oracle of Babylon and the destruction of Babylon, and this is the same two chapters that are going to introduce howlings, which is, take that back to Hebrew, and you've got dragons and satyrs and all sorts of beasts. This now starts to mesh in as we understand the timing of the destruction of Babylon and the Ezekiel War and the opening of the abyss, that we have all of these dancing satyrs and owls and dragons and things, dragons living in palaces and drunken with rituals and feasts because of the hatred for humankind and at the destruction of Babylon and what they're about to bring on humankind. This is not language that is being exaggerated. This is language that is developing the understanding of Revelation 9. So Isaiah 13 and 14 are a dual prophecies, what I call prophetic dual prophecies, as is Jeremiah 50 and 51, because you have the fall of Babylon and the fall of the Assyrian, as it's talked about in Isaiah 14 as well, in ancient times, but you have events that are going on that cannot be applied to the fall of Babylon in ancient times or the fall of Assyria in ancient times. And there are clearly events that are going to happen going forward. And you also have things like Lucifer being mentioned, who, when we take that back to Hebrew, is Hail El, which is Hail El Ben Shakar, so Hail El, son of the morning. And I don't believe that should be trans, you know, trans uh, translated as Lucifer, because that's a that's a an Italian word that's just been put in over a Hebrew word. And I think we should look at the end of it where it has an E-L. That's probably and likely one of the names or titles to that Satan had before his fall, which it describes him as falling. And certainly we can't have this as a human king who fell from heaven because only Satan falls from heaven. And we know that because Jesus in Luke 10, 18, always go back to what Jesus said, he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And then it goes into, Jesus talks about, because I like to put verse 19 in there as well, where he gives us power over scorpions and serpents. And again, I think that's all connected, especially when we look at what I think is being described in Revelation 9 as those scorpion gods. I think that's there for, for a reason. And so, when people look at Isaiah 14 and say that Lucifer is a Nephilim or a human king, I think this is a little bit of a misnomer. You have the Assyrian and the king of Babylon, which is the figurative Hel-El, which is H-E-L-E-L, -E as the king of Babylon that's being described about and being used with what happened in prehistory to give us the context for what is going to happen in the end time. So that when you start to read all of these other details that are in those prophecies, particularly Isaiah 14, that this could not happen to a human, you can now read Ezekiel 28 in the same way. 
and understand that that is also a dual prophecy. And when it calls the being that appears to be Satan in there as a cherubim, he is cherubim. This is not a human. And so we have to understand that there are a delineation of these supernatural beings. You have these fallen angels, and you have their offspring, which are the Nephilim and the descendants of the bloodlines, who are going to be probably the kings and the rulers of this ten-nation empire in the end time. And I also leave open the possibility that we may have some newly created Nephilim, because it's going to be like the days of Noah, as Jesus said. But we don't we don't have to have that. We can just have the, the descendants as as they hold the leadership in the royal bloodlines that I write extensively about in my book as being the kings of, of the ten-nation empire that encompasses the whole world. And that the human aspect here is, is that you have Hellel, or the king of Babylon, or the Assyrian, which also links back to the destroyer, and I've got a handout on that if people want that, is being talked about as these descendants. And when Isaiah 14, later on, and I think it's in verse 29 or 30, uh, it talks about the serpent's root. Out of the serpent's root comes forth a cockatrice, which is another form of snake, viper, or adder, and its fruit will be a flying serpent. And again, as you read this as being also an end-time prophecy, and it is a prophecy, it clearly says it's a prophecy in Isaiah, then we understand that the serpent root probably comes from the seraphim angels, which we know Satan is also a dragon and a serpent, which is a fiery seraphim angel, so he's probably both in his in his uh, ancient sort of titles that, that, that he held. And out of the serpent root will be the fruit of the flying serpent. Okay, well, that's a seraphim angel. So I think what it's talking about there is quite clearly is, is that we have a lineage of Nephilim that is going to produce another type of Nephilim that is going to declare himself as Antichrist. That's going to bring about what they're going to try and bring about is Satan's thrown on earth, which kind of happens officially and visibly, as opposed to invisibly, as he has authority over the world today, so that all people left are going to worship him and take the mark of the beast. And the serpent root is is the offspring of the Nephilim created by the serpent-like angels who went to Mount Hermon to create the original Nephilim. And I think you have all of these types of things coming together to suggest that you've got this supernatural alliance in the end time that are, are all down on earth with us creating all of these terrible catastrophes and just as you get into ezekiel 39 you have an odd word called passengers in the king james version and travelers in some of the other trans english translations um and they're passing through where gog is buried after the gog war is over and that goes back to h5674 a word called a bar which means crossing over and to overcome and to bring over and what's important about that this is the slaughter of of the fatlings of bashan of course bashan is used significantly in the old testament for these beasts that are roaring at jesus in the psalms while he's on the cross and so when you understand that there's something more going on here with the passengers and the fatlings of Bashan, we understand now that this is thought to be connected to the Raphaim, or the spirits of, uh, of the dead Nephilim, as it's translated through from one of its versions in, in, in Hebrew. And that in the Ugaritic civilization, that these Raphaim, which are in Bashan, and where Mount Hermon was and where the initial Nephilim were created, we have this connection of Raphaim who are talked about in the Ugaritic texts of being able to cross over from the underworld or the abyss that we talked about earlier and the physical world. And now we have these travelers that are inexplicably in there connected with the fatlings of Bashan. And again, look for Bashan as that sort of prophetic marker. So we have so many things that interconnect into Revelation 9 that goes back into the Old Testament and gives us understanding for those crazy things that Revelation 9 talks about and starts to give us an order of events. If we let it read literally, that starts to make some sense. So are you still with me, Sheila? And do you have any questions on that? I mean, you had said that you wanted to do some questions and things, and I was just watching the times. Yeah. So. 
one of the things I just wanted to get your sort of take on to tie this in was, you know, and this is really key with the Masonic, the Gnostics, the Theosophy, this sort of new age delusion that Lucifer is always good while Adonai is intermittently evil. That's a really, you know, if you look at the Sumerian flood narrative of the Epic of Gilgamesh, you mentioned that before. It's always Satan is the good God. This whole light is the, as we know, is the Masonic symbol for intelligence, information, knowledge. It's really interesting how that's been twisted though hasn't it yeah they've done a very very good job of uh twisting things around uh, in ways that people haven't really thought of you know the word adane actually appears in hebrew right as my lord but it's also my lord is uh, used you know about six thousand times inappropriately in the king james version in my opinion because uh, you know it doesn't go back to adane it goes back to elohim um and yahweh so and when we look at how they perceive the god of the bible and when i talk about they i'm talking about gnostics and freemasons and polytheists um, in this global gnosticism is that they look and name the god of the jews or the god of the bible adane and adane is the same god of adonis that they have in their mysteries as being uh, one one of the gods and just another angel equal to you know the angel they call lucifer who we call satan or, or and i also like to call hell l and so they've turned it inside out and upside down so what's going to be portrayed to the people is that we need to stand up and fight for our freedom in the end time just like they do in star wars the rebels they stand up against the evil empire which they describe in all their literature that the god of the bible is and so adane when they say is intermittently evil they're talking Talking about the flood, putting down the angelic rebellion. They talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. They talk about slaughtering all of the people in in the Exodus, which were essentially all Nephilim and hybrid Nephilim uh, that had possessed the promised land and, and laid there in ambush. And so, what they're going to present to the people is is that there is this duality, that there's this equality between good versus evil, and there always will be this perpetual fight. But if you want your freedom from oppression, freedom from ignorance, and to be be like gods, which is exactly what Satan uh, promised uh, in Eden with the fall of Adam and Eve with his first revenge, he's, this is going to be promised again. And they'll make uh, an extraordinary case that Christians and all people who follow God, the true God of the Bible, are the evil ones, and that we need to be exterminated, which is why you have Babylon exterminating people in the first three and a half years, and you have the slaughter of those who are not raptured and do not take the mark of the beast in the second half. And so, intermittent evil, yes, that's how they like to describe Adane, but they also view him as pretty much totally evil. And this is going to be that argument that's going to be very, very pervasive and persuasive with all the signs of miracles and all of the catastrophes and everything that's going on. They're just going to inundate people so that they can't think properly, so that they can get them to take the mark and rebel against God in the end time. Well, and is it interesting to you, like you've obviously talked a lot about the beast and the dragon. Is it interesting to you that the antediluvian dragon serpent was kind of this majestic animal of kingship before Eden, it's believed that the serpent of Genesis and the dragon in Babylonian mythology were one and the same. And it's really interesting if you look up dracon being the Greek word for dragon meaning serpent. There's just some really interesting parallels. Do you find that as well? Oh, there, there are more than parallels. I mean, they are talking about the same thing. And dracon uh, also is translated as watcher uh, out of Greek. So yeah. not only a dragon, but also a watcher. So, and this goes back to that fiery seraphim angel, which were uh, watchers were an order of uh, the seraphim. And these are the ones who go to Mount Hermon. And they had, you know, the face of a viper. And, and with wings, they become this angelic dragon. Just as you have the Nakash in Eden, and I think he's avatared by Satan, as opposed to Satan actually deceiving Adam and Eve, or even then Adam, um, actually avatars him because Satan isn't the one who loses his arms and legs and everything like that and has to crawl on the ground. This is clearly an animal. This was an intelligent serpent being that was considered in the polytheist world the symbol for kingship and the preferred being by satan because of its intelligence and to be a king-like being and it's it's replacing with the creation of adam the nakash the serpent 
And that's why you also have, with the second revenge of Satan and the fallen angels, you have the Watchers going to Mount Hermon to create the Nephilim, who also looked like serpents. And that's why they have, for kingship, all of this cobra, snake, and dragon imagery around not only the gods, but also the gods' representatives on Earth, their offspring, the Nephilim, who controlled the kingships both before and after the flood. And that is not a coincidence. So when we talk about Isaiah 14 as the serpent root, we have the serpent root that goes back to Genesis 6. We also have the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15, which in from um, how I perceive things, Genesis 6 fulfills that. And I know there's a couple other views on Genesis 3.15 that I won't go into today. And you also have the Nakash. One wonders whether or not Satan and the fallen angels saved some of the Nakash from being stripped of their arms and their legs and their ability to speak and their intelligence. I wonder whether or not these are part of the reptilians that are part of the alien deception that's going on, just as the little people might be part of that deception as another violation against the laws of creation to give people of the earth an impression that there are all of these species, you know, around the earth. So we have reptilian angels, we have reptilian beings, and we have reptilian offspring of the angels as part of that serpent's root. And I think that imagery is something that we have to take into account every time we're looking at the spiritual war that plays itself out with human through our limited time before the end time that is is taking place. And I would also say that, you know, the Nakash in Eden, there's nothing to say that there weren't Nakash that had wings, so that you would have an actual animal dragon-like being that was before the fall of, of Adam and Eve and, and the, the cash being punished. So when we look at these words that are used in the Bible and when we verify them through Hebrew and or Greek and we find that these words were put there for a reason to prepare us and understand the spiritual battle that we have and for the end time to try and not be deceived, to sift through what's going to happen because if we don't understand what happened in prehistory, if we don't have, understand what happened happened in the Old Testament, then we will be very vulnerable to be deceived. And clearly, Jesus is talking about this when he says that even the elect will be deceived if that were possible. We need to prepare not to be deceived. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, get into Leviathan, because Leviathan is very interesting, and it's also very significant, isn't it? It is, and um, it's, it's, it's literally a dragon. It's literally a serpent, and in this case, a sea serpent. And it all sort of goes with that same sort of word. Um, and, you know, whether it's tanum or it's dragon, or it's, it's serpent. And there were two of these in the beginning, and God destroys one, right? Just as in polytheism, you have Marduk or Baal destroying equivalents in their recollection of prehistory with a polytheist lens. It's talking about the same type of events. And that Leviathan, we're told, is going to be destroyed again in the last one in the end times. So there's still a Leviathan that's out there, apparently, that we may see in the end time. And this thing would be just frightening beyond understanding. And if God destroyed one so that it couldn't populate and destroy the whole earth, uh, you know, I just wonder um, whether or not this was part of uh, creation or before creation, who created the Leviathan um, that one had to be destroyed because it either served a purpose or it was created to destroy the earth. And I don't think God creates anything to destroy the earth. So again, you get into this whole Leviathan thing that's part of the serpent. And in Jewish mysticism, there's this rebellion that happens in days one through six where you have the separation of the sky and the earth. Well, that's where they believe that uh, the rebellion happened and Leviathan was part of that rebellion that took place with, with the other angels. And I think there's going to be, you know, something spectacular that happens uh, at some point in the end time with, uh, with Leviathan, probably towards the end, but it's uh, definitely that last one's going to be de- be destroyed. But it's that, again, it's that serpent and dragon imagery and how highly the polytheist religions hold these dragon gods. And in this case, they, that would be their cosmic dragon that 
was part of their creation. So, and I'm not suggesting that Leviathan created the world and life through a cosmic egg, but what we do know is, is there were two Leviathans recorded in the Bible. We don't get a lot of detail why they were created. We only know that God destroys one, and the other one is going to be destroyed in the future. When it comes to the Antichrist and the connections to what we're talking about, Abaddon, Apollyon, this whole Revelation 9 scenario, and as it pertains to Joel, and we got into Isaiah 14, what really is the important key takeaways from this for the listeners right now? Sort of tie it together for us. There are going to be extraordinary things that if we're around to witness, and I believe uh, more towards a slightly after midpoint of the last seven years for, for rapture, is that we're going to see some extraordinary beings and things that are just going to blow our minds away. And that we're going to be uh, very, very alert that we don't jump at who is the first Antichrist. Because there's only one that rises to the top. And Jesus clearly says in Matthew 24 that there will be many Antichrists. So we can't just be jumping here and there and saying he's the Antichrist because Gog is considered in its meaning a type of Antichrist. And I think we're going to see these coming from all peoples in the end time. There's only going to be one, and he's going to be the one that is avatared by the one who comes out of the abyss, Apollyon, just as he's called, the son of perdition. So we have to be very, very clear as these events come on us that we're not going to be deceived into saying this is Armageddon and we're going to fall for the, who the false messiah is proclaiming himself to be. And that this false messiah is going to present a pedigree of royal bloodlines that goes back as the serpent's root. He's going to connect himself back to all the famous people of the Bible like King Saul and King David and Jesus. And he's going to connect himself to the main bloodlines of the Nephilim through all of the intermarriages and that they're going to have this genealogy that they're going to present. And it's going to be uh, very, very persuasive. So I think those are the key points is, is the Bible is literal. These extraordinary events are going to take place. Yeah, well, with those kind of beasts of the earth, <laughs> when they do take place, extraordinary is probably an understatement. I think you said it earlier, it's going to just blow people's minds. It says that people's hearts will fail them for fear of those things coming upon the earth. One thing is really interesting, though, a lot of people, you know, say, oh, no, this is just happening spiritually. I really believe these beasts of the earth are going to be manifesting in the physical. This is not something taking place in the unseen realm. Yeah, I think we're going to see these visible beasts you know they may even be fighting rival factions for for all we know right um but there, this is this is going to happen on a global basis and we're going to have this is not the first three and a half years isn't going to be a time of peace even though they're going to proclaim it but that's what antichrist will proclaim as he comes in after the revelation nine war that he's bringing in peace so he'll be declared as peace then and then all heck breaks loose again not there too long thereafter and so there's going to be many wars, and I think these beings are going to be leading them from all around the earth. And just as there's going to be many antichrists that are going to be part of leading these armies fighting for power. I mean, you look at whether or not it's Lord Maitreya that comes out of uh, Eastern uh, Buddhism and, and Hinduism or the Mahdi or the, the Shia. We will see these bloodlines presenting their own antichrists because they all have similar sort of end time prophecies. Well, and of course, you know, a third of the population, that's not something you're going to miss, is it? There's a real slaughtering of a lot of, we're talking billions of people. Yeah, and that's after 25%. 25%, then 33%. So you can understand why people would think that was Armageddon, right? Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, people have got to get this book, Gary. In the waning part of the show, I want you to tell folks the best way they can check out your handiwork and get a copy of Genesis 6 Conspiracy. So if anybody wants to get a hold of me or ask me a question or get any of uh, the stuff that I, I was offering earlier, you can get a hold of me through my website, Genesis6Conspiracy.com, Genesis6 with the number 6Conspiracy.com. And on there I have 
an email connection where you can send me an email and also it can you can connect through facebook that i'll get to in a minute and if you wanted to order uh, a signed copy you can order it through the website if you wanted to connect to barnes noble or amazon from there you can do that and also to the kindle edition and if you do ask me a question i will get back to you on it or if you do ask me for a handout and i ha- and, and i have it i will provide it for you and you can follow me on facebook at gary wayne and also on a group that i have uh, gary wayne the genesis six conspiracy so that's the page gary wayne and the genesis six conspiracy group and i also have a couple genesis six conspiracy pages and i monitor all of those so you can get a hold of me there and i put out a weekly post so if you're wanting to hear a little bit more on the serpent's root i'll be doing that one probably uh, in a week and a half in detail but i already have six parts before that on these various types of beasts that, that we're talking about and you can also follow me and or get a hold of me on twitter at gary wayne 63 at gary wayne 63 excellent well thank you so much gary for taking the time out of your busy schedule and coming on today to really lay this out really like no one can i really appreciate your time and thank you so much and we look forward to you coming back real soon well terrific i really enjoy talking about this and uh, i think it's the first time i spent this much time on revelation 9 and to me it's just one of the most fascinating parts of prophecy that's in the bible well you talk a lot about it in your book as well and i think this is it's just such an incredible book and i'm looking forward to finishing it yeah it takes it's a journey it's a journey no doubt about it and then most people like to go back and reread it as well because there's just so much information in there you got that right folks that was gary wayne the book is the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Get your hands on this book. There is so much information in this book, and I'm looking forward to having Gary back on to do a Q&A. So if you have any questions you want answered on air, send me an email, www.sheila.media, and send me any questions that you have. We have some fantastic guests on the horizon for the rest of the month. Be watching for Timothy Alberino. That's going to be a really good show. I want to get a sneak peek on his book. Now, I believe his book is called Alien Apocalypse, but don't quote me on that. And that's going to be fantastic. Be watching for that next week. We here in my city are under an air quality evac. That's right. The forest fires that are surrounding the entire BC Okanagan region are just, it's unbelievable. People are walking around the community with these little white masks on, and it looks like something out of the scene of pandemic. So I probably am not going to be here for the rest of the week until this red alert air quality thing goes away. So I'm kind of being shuffled out of my city this weekend. It's really hard to breathe. A lot of people are in emergency. This morning, I was having a hard time catching my breath. It was really, really bad to breathe in this toxic smoke air. My eyes are really burning and it feels like someone lit my eyes on fire and put it out with battery acid. It's really, really bad. So I don't know how long I'm going to be gone, but for sure a week. But as soon as I can get that Timothy Alberino show edited, you'll see it up there. So Thank you for being patient, and I really appreciate your prayers, and I also really appreciate your support. And I want to remind people, I need your help as a listener. If you are not financially supporting this show, I need your help. I don't have advertisers or sponsors. It is a listener-supported show, and I really need your help, and I hope you do get behind me and make sure that this show stays on the air. So if you're not supporting me financially, please do that. That is very important to me, and I thank you for that. And please be praying. Your prayers are really important to me, and I thank you for tuning into the program, and we will see you as soon as I possibly can. Good night, and God bless.